Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, who fight hard for small businesses on the public policy level to make it easier for them to grow and easier for them to employ more people and pursue the American dream. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named J.C. Heisenga, but we'll be glad to have met him. My grandfather emigrated from the Netherlands back in 1892. He didn't have any particular skills. He did have uh, the ability to drive a team of horses. And so he started picking up garbage in the pre-dawn hours in the city of Chicago. He made his living picking up other people's trash. It was just about the time that cars were being invented. There was all the things to put up with in the city, like what comes out of horses <laughs> and uh, the lack of air conditioning. So everybody had their windows open and, and the flies in the streets. And we can romanticize those times, but I'd rather live in these times. My father followed in his footsteps, so I had the benefit of the humility of being the son of a garbage man. I started out working in the landfill, pushing garbage and a piece of heavy equipment. So I went from that to a decision to improve my education. I went back and got a master's degree. It didn't seem like there was a, much of a future in working in a garbage dump. I then said to JC, well, you turned out to be just a wee bit wrong on that one. <laughs> well, I didn't quite see the career path at that time. There was too much family politics involved. His family's little garbage business became the largest one in the world. What we know as waste management. So my mother was living in a bungalow and looking forward to the day in which she could move out to a nicer house. And she lived there for quite a while. Even after my father's death, he died of a heart attack. I was five years old. And she would save up and say, now I've got enough for the draperies in the living room. Now I've got enough for the rugs in the bedrooms. When she finally had enough saved up to buy the house, my brother-in-law came along and said, I need that capital for the growth of the company that we're building. And she had the confidence in him to surrender that savings so that helped grow the foundation for what became waste management. It's interesting to lose your dad at an early age because you live up to the legend of who your father was and you don't see all the warts. You only hear the wonderful memories of what a great man he was. And so that's what I've lived up and aspired to be like. And I ran across a company called American Litho, manufactured printing plates for the newspaper industry. It was a struggling little company and I wanted to learn manufacturing. 
made the purchase and uh, it went from being struggling to a respectable company that kind of came and also paid top dollar for it. How did JC turn this around? Well, he didn't do it. I hired the right people. Steve Klotz was the audit manager. He was working at an accounting firm, so I got to know him. I knew he was a man of integrity and had just a tremendous amount of common sense. So I went to him and I said, Hey, Steve, I want you to come work for me. And Steve said, JC, I do your books. I know you can't afford me. <laughs> I said, but Steve, I can't afford not to hire you. He did come with me and I was accurate in my judgment of his abilities. And uh, in fact, he runs all of manufacturing with me today. So we have about a dozen manufacturing companies. We currently have an employee base of probably about 2,000 people. And we do everything from uh, tool and die. We build the large die sets. It's probably twice the size of this conference table that stampers use to create car parts. The frame rails and the pillars and the motor mounts. So we will sell a large die set for somewhere in the neighborhood of a half million dollars. It takes maybe six weeks to build a die set like that. Must be pretty cool to be in a car and know that you help make it possible. But it's not exactly glamorous like working for Google, Goldman Sachs, or owning your own Greek restaurant. So garbage wasn't very sexy either. <laughs> and uh, garbage always had good margins to it. So it's, it's taught me that the glamour industries, the margins are a lot slimmer than the industries that people tend to look down at. And those margins have real-world consequences. The company we sold, JR Automation, we sold it for actually three times what we couldn't sell it for two years before that. So sometimes things work out well and we felt compelled to, to be generous with our employees. So we shared probably more than $6 million of the proceeds with our employees. They were grateful. In fact, they were probably kind of glad to see us go at that point. But their new boss joked that the bonuses might have been too high, and he worried whether they'd even show up for work the next day. For some of the employees, it was equivalent to a year's wages. And when we come back, we continue with our American Dreamer story, the story of J.C. Heisinger, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamers story of Michigan manufacturer J.C. Heisinger. So Michigan is a little bit out of the way. It's not on a main highway to anywhere. You have to want to be here. And so there are a lot of secrets we have here in Michigan, secrets of the quality of life that we have. And we kind of, uh, and I'm spilling the beans a little bit here, I kind of don't like to talk about it. We don't have a whole lot of rush hour traffic. We have wonderful people here, a great quality of life. It's a wonderful place to be here in West Michigan. I grew up in Chicago. I love Chicago, but traffic is awful. People are less courteous. This is middle America at its best here, partly because of the Dutch influence, partly because of the Polish influence. People are down to earth. They're hard workers. One of the, one of the jokes about uh, the Dutch folks here is a guy would rather be caught in bed with another woman than caught at home on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> so people do, uh, do work. My uh, brother recently passed away. Uh, he worked until the day before his stroke that took his life. A trauma care physician came to me with kind of a crazy idea. He was a young doctor doing his residency in the city of Detroit, treating gunshot wounds and stabbings, those types of issues. He lived in an urban neighborhood not far from where he worked got to know his neighbors and came to the realization that his neighbor's kids had no hope for a meaningful future because they had no education to build on. Detroit public schools are perhaps the worst schools in the nation. 93% of their students aren't proficient in math and 95% aren't proficient in reading the lowest scores in the country. The schools simply weren't serving their needs. He resolved to do something about that. He was a doctor, he didn't know anything about how to fix the lives. He knew how to fix the gunshot wounds, but he didn't know how to heal the lives of those young children. But he thought it had something to do with education. So what he did was he resolved to change the system of education in this country, or in the state that would allow for competition in education. Originally, he was on a track to promote vouchers. But then the state of Minnesota, this was 1991, passed a law that would allow for something called a charter school an independently run, government-funded public school. Vouchers allow students to go to any private school of their choosing with the taxpayer dollars that would have been spent on them in their assigned public school, whereas a charter school is still a public school, but it's given more freedom to innovate. 
So he changed his focus to a charter effort, created something called Teach Michigan. He asked me to serve on his board, not because I knew anything about education, but because I had a checkbook and I was willing to help fund an effort to change the law. When you change a law, you have to lobby and lobbying takes resources. Well, we passed the law in December of 1993. Four months later, my son was born, and I now saw education not just as a public policy issue, but as a personal issue. And as I held that little infant in my arms, thinking about his future, I said, you know, I'm gonna do everything I can to give this child the best life I possibly can. So if he screws it up, it's all on him. But just the opposite is true for the kids in Detroit. They're given nothing in the inner city and we expect them to make something out of their lives. And at that point, I decided, I think I wanna open one of these charter schools and make it the kind of school that I would want to send my own son to and afford that same opportunity to the kids who were disadvantaged in communities like Detroit. Barely knowing what a charter school is, not knowing how to open one, I uh, called up a fellow education reform individual. His name is Mark DeHaan and I said, Mark, if you were gonna open a charter school, how would you do it? He said, you know, the application is curriculum driven, so I guess I'd put together a curriculum committee. And I said, okay, Mark, do you suppose that's a volunteer committee or am I gonna have to commit some financial resources? He goes, I don't know, I haven't thought about it. I guess we could make it a volunteer committee I said, good, Mark, organize that committee. And he did. Mark didn't know what he was getting himself into when he picked up JC's phone call. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know what was, uh, uh, what lay ahead for him. But we put together an application, submitted it. We were approved, and I didn't want to be the only one of three applications that were approved and the school didn't open. So now I'm under the gun. I've got three months because it was approved on June 1st of 1995. I've got three months to get a school open. So I called Mark up again and I go, I got good news and bad news. We've been approved for our first charter but we've got three months to get the school open. I said, what do we do now? Mark says, hire me and I'll figure it out. Well, he didn't know anything more about opening a school than I did. I said, Mark, I'll do that, but understand if we get to Labor Day and we don't have a school to open, I don't have a job for somebody who almost opened a charter school. He said, I'll take the risk. And so uh, it was a magical summer. We worked fast and furious. And for a couple of guys who hadn't been in education, 
We did get that school open on time. It highlights a quote from Leonard Bernstein, to achieve great things, two things are needed. Number one, a plan. Number two, not quite enough time. <laughs> but we had no idea how many kids were gonna show up. 174 showed up. It surprised us how many parents were embracing two guys who didn't know what they were doing. It just shows you how desperate their situation was that their government put them in. When I saw that many students show up, I said to Mark, I think there's something to this. Mark, how many schools can you open next year? And he goes, I don't know, maybe three. And I said, good, that's your goal. Let's get busy. And so he opened three schools the next year, kept on going from there. And at this point, I think we have 86 schools. We have almost 60,000 students more students than probably any university has in this country. And what a number, 60,000 students, and by the way, in nine states. And by the way, the media hasn't told this story. And the demand, particularly what caught JC's attention, was all of those people lining up, all of those kids lining up, as he put it, the desperate nature of all of this. When we come back, more of our American Dreamer story more on this remarkable man and his commitment to helping kids at risk and using his capital to do it. J.C. Heisinger's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with manufacturer J.C. Heisinger's story of founding a network of charter schools called the National Heritage Academies to make sure that every American kid has the shot at a high-quality education. Let's continue the story. So the way we differentiate is primarily on four pillars. One is academic excellence, parental partnership. Third is moral focus, which for some is the more controversial one. And the fourth is student responsibility. Let me take a minute to talk about moral focus. I believe that instead of calling these public schools, these are really schools for the republic, right? We're producing leaders of tomorrow and we want those students to be the very best they can be. One of the things that they need 
to learn is how to be a good citizen. So we have a moral focus that's based on the four Greek cardinal virtues. We believe that anything we teach has to be based on a paradigm of some sort. So the four Greek cardinal virtues are temperance, prudence, justice, and fortitude. And from those spring every other virtue. Those were embraced by the early Greek philosophers, philosophers like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. They all understood that the way to achieve a life well-lived had to be a life that incorporated those virtues. We also have something kind of interesting. We have a social contract in every classroom. It's a do's and don'ts that guides the behavior of the students in that classroom over the course of the year. And they come up with that contract together and then every student signs it in the first day or two of class. What is the U.S. Constitution? It is a social contract. So this is a lesson in civics at its best. And so then when something goes wrong in the classroom, it's incumbent on the teacher to do a teaching moment, kind of do a post-mortem of how this fight happened or how somebody got bullied or teased or whatever the issue was, an outburst in class. Where did we go wrong on the social contract? And what do we do to prevent that from happening again? And so students learn civics on a micro basis in real time. And isn't that what life is all about? The micro, the personal, and the macro, the social, all interacting together. Our parent partnership, we celebrate parents. We have a parent room in every school. It's a place where a parent can come, hang up their coat, put on a pot of coffee. If they want, they can leave their toddler with another parent or engage in different social activities with other parents, but that's their place at the school. Most other schools don't have a place that a parent will see as welcoming and inviting the parent to be at the school. And so we believe that in order for education to be successful, there needs to be a bridge between the school and the home. At the home, they reinforce the things that are taught in the school and vice versa. And so it becomes a successful partnership. And surveys have found that the National Heritage Schools have higher parental engagement than most schools. You get what you measure, I guess, right? And so we measure parent engagement. We measure everything we can. The University of Michigan released a significant research report. They took two cohorts one was the students who were accepted into a National Heritage School here in Michigan. And the other was the students who were rejected in that same lottery process. A cold, soulless process where if there's too many students who don't want to go to the public schools that they're assigned to and want to go to one of the National Heritage Charter Schools instead, State law mandates that they have a lottery, a game of luck, to decide who will be the winners and get in. 
and who will be the losers and not. And they track them through their academic pursuits at other schools. And I think they expected a different result. But what it demonstrated was both in reading and math in a statistically significant way, the students in National Heritage Schools outperformed on a state proficiency scale their counterparts who were rejected in the lottery process. The other thing that we're proud of is our ability to deliver that education at a significantly lower cost than what any other public school could deliver that education at. So remember Milton Friedman. May he rest in peace. He was uh, a great common sense economist. Friedman said anything the government can do, the private sector can do for about half the cost. And once again, he's pretty close to being right. In fact, uh, one of Milton Friedman's quotes is, spending will increase to meet the resources available. So when you look at the way we operate public schools, they're operated by school boards. So they're committees where no individual takes full responsibility. There's a lot of blame that can be shared around the table. Nobody wants to ask a stupid question either. So nobody really gets to the heart of an issue because they might embarrass themselves by asking a question that they'll get a strange look from the superintendent when they ask that question. So everybody kind of gets along. Well, with nobody challenging what's spent, funds are spent that don't need to be spent. A new superintendent will come in, maybe a new phone system has been ordered, and the new superintendent doesn't like it, so it goes into inventory in a big warehouse somewhere. And if you look at some of these district warehouses, they're filled with books and electronics and teaching aids and all kinds of things that are obsolete. Where's the media investigation on that one? I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a public school warehouse. Oh, there are. Okay, where was Kennedy shot? He was shot in Dallas, Texas by Lee Harvey Oswald, who was shooting out the window of a book depository that was owned by Dallas Public Schools. Isn't that interesting? Every district has a warehouse somewhere where all that stuff is kept. But J.C. doesn't have them. We don't even have closets in our classrooms, and the teachers hate me for that because stuff expands to fill the space available. And if you've got a closet, you've probably got a shelf where you haven't touched that shelf in a couple of years. Well, stuff accumulates. In the case of corporate enterprises, the less opportunity you have for stuff to accumulate, the better off you're going to be. And my goodness, we're all nodding and we're all smiling because we know from our own lives 
We'll fill up space in our own houses with stuff we don't need. But my goodness, the schools, the charter schools that J.C. Heisinger has created, academic excellence, parental partnership, moral focus, student responsibility, I know what you're thinking. My goodness, is one of these schools near me. When we come back, the rest of J.C. Heisinger's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now the final portion of J.C. Heisinger's remarkable American Dreamer story. He's lived the American dream and now working to make sure that every American child can too, founding a network of charter schools called the National Heritage Academies. According to a Mackinac Center study that quantitatively demonstrated that a charter school is funded at about a differential of $2,782 when compared to a district school. So the formula is you're funded either at the state average or at the district level, whichever is lower. And you typically don't get entitlements, you don't get millages. And in the case of National Heritage, we actually pay tax on what's left over. Right, Because they're actually a for-profit company that manages the charter schools and thus pays taxes. And that tax often, in part, supports our competition. So there's a little irony that, that goes along with that. But the reality is, in Michigan, we will save the state little bit more than a hundred million dollars this year alone. So how's that happen? We have about 36,500 students in the state of Michigan and if you multiply that times the differential that we receive, $2,782 less than a district school, we come out with about just higher than a hundred million dollars per year just in Michigan. We operate in nine states altogether, but just in Michigan, we save the citizens of Michigan a hundred million dollars a year. And for a better education, a lower cost for something better. Now, for-profit charter school companies are often criticized. People say that education is something that has to be above the desire to make a profit, and that for-profit companies are inherently greedy, refuse to invest what they should into the classroom, and instead pocket these taxpayer dollars for themselves as profit. 
JC's received all these criticisms before, and he tells the story of how a prominent nonprofit charter school network compares to his for-profit one. So when you look at one of our largest competitors, KIPP Schools, stands for Knowledge is Power, KIPP Schools receive pretty close to $2,500 a year in private donations per student. So we're able to match KIPP's quality for at least $2,500 per student less than what KIPP spends. Plus, they also received $50 million from the U.S. Department of Education. So there are a lot of funds that go toward not-for-profits that for-profits aren't entitled to. But we still provide a whole lot more for a whole lot less. The ability to profit provides a discipline to spending that simply couldn't be there without it when it's not your money. Well, Milton Friedman says there's four ways to spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself, in which case you'll be sure you're getting good value for what you spend. You can spend your money on someone else in terms of a birthday gift or something like that. You'll make sure that you're getting value. You're probably a little less worried about the quality. Then you can spend somebody else's money on yourself, in which case you'll probably get a pretty good lunch out of it. Or you can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. In that case, you don't care either about the quality or about the cost. And that's what we have in public education, where bureaucrats who have no responsibility are spending government money on other people, and it's just not a good system. The private sector is the best way to direct resources on the issues that need to be addressed. And with JC's for-profit charter schools, he's forced to have better schools than traditional public schools, otherwise his customers will leave. They can leave and go back to the public school that they were assigned to. But the customers of traditional public schools who don't have the money to attend a private school and who don't have another option in a charter school nearby them don't have that choice. They don't have any choice. They have nowhere to go and therefore aren't really customers and it shows. And in JC's case, how he spends his profit is not what you might think, and the media hasn't reported it. Well, the profit doesn't go into anybody's pocket. It goes into the next school that gets built. It provides the capital for the growth that needs to occur. Why grow? So you can serve a greater number of students. I get paid $10,000 a year. And the only reason why I'm paid $10,000 a year is to qualify for the insurance program that they offer. Because <laughs> otherwise I'd be in, on Medicare, and I don't want to be on a government program. 
even though he's paid into that program his whole working life. And if you really think about JC's yearly profit of $10,000, an amount that he couldn't even take care of his family with, he's probably actually losing money on it. Imagine the greater wealth generating activities that this successful manufacturer could be spending his time on, but he's chosen to spend his time on this to lose money. That's probably true. Yeah. We actually have teachers now who are students of ours and they've come back to teach in our schools. And so those are the ones that get it best because they fully understand and appreciate what we do in our schools and how we exist to give that student the best hope we can give that child. And really it's giving the American dream. One of the things that I've said is it kind of makes me feel like Santa Claus because I can give students the thing that their parents anyway value most and it doesn't cost me a dime, it's the government's money. And, uh, and those parents are so grateful for what we give them. And especially when you consider what some of their potential alternatives are. Some of JC's schools are in some incredibly tough neighborhoods, such as inner city Detroit, where his schools can at least be a respite from what awaits the students outside its doors. We have a school in one neighborhood where kids come to school with sticks. We said, why the sticks? Well, there are 50,000 feral dogs that roam the streets of Detroit and they use them to keep the dogs away from the kids. It's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough place. They're saying there's a uh, renaissance in Detroit. Well, that's only in the core. If you go through the neighborhoods, three things need to happen. The three problems are corruption, safety, and education. Once they solve those three, then Detroit will come back. I'll tell another interesting story, and I've told this story to Rich DeVos. The co-founder of Amway, the direct selling company that's given over 6 million people worldwide the opportunity to own their own independent business. One of the things when we were smaller, we used to have a big gala for all our employees to start the year off. And it was the culmination of a week of, of training and refreshing for the next school year. And after one of these banquets, I got pulled aside afterward by one of our teachers who said, is there a link between you and Amway Corporation? And I said, no, why do you ask? She said, well, my husband and I are both Amway business representatives. And uh, this felt a whole lot like an Amway reality. And I said, funny that you mentioned that because we're both selling the same thing. And she looked at me like I had three eyes. And I said, you might think that Amway sells soap and cosmetics 
and nutritional supplements. But in reality, they sell the American dream. I said, we sell that same dream, but to the next generation. And so well said, and that's J.C. Heisinger, the owner of a dozen manufacturing companies, but most important, the founder of the National Heritage Academies, a for-profit company that manages 87 charter schools with more than 60,000 students in nine states. His story and the story of the American dream here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we like to talk to people from all walks of life. We're about to hear from a guy who has an interesting hobby. He's a black man who collects Ku Klux Klan robes. While hate groups like the Klan have dwindled from a population over a million in the 1920s to somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 members across the entire country today, our guest became fascinated with what makes people like this tick at a very young age. Here's Jesse. You've probably seen Daryl Davis on TV. Welcome back. We are about to bring you an almost unbelievable story out into the open. Ask yourself, how willing would you be to make friends with someone who hates you because of your skin color? Well, that's exactly why the man you're about to meet caught our attention. He's the black guy known for his uncanny ability to convert KKK members into kind-hearted everyday Americans such as yourself. Daryl flips Klansmen like he's flipping houses. And he always likes to keep a little trophy. They were given to me by active Klan members who left the organization. This is the robe of an Imperial Wizard. Okay, this is the, the top guy. And uh, blue or purple, your choice, designates the Imperial level. Again, this is a white cotton robe with blue adornments. I keep a lot of them locked up off-site. Um, but I would guess, you know, I, I got three recently. And I would guess maybe I have between 40, 42, 44. Now we'll get back to his robe collection soon enough, because the Daryl Davis story starts with music. Chuck Berry had a very profound impact on me. The man was a genius. You know, many people can say that they wrote a song. Many people can say that they played a song. But few people can claim that they invented a genre of music. And Chuck Berry certainly did that. We would not have rock and roll without Chuck Berry. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! And uh, when I first uh, heard Chuck Berry, I fell in love with that music And when I saw him, I changed my whole career trajectory that I was on as a kid while Daryl Davis was discovering his love for music, rock and roll was breaking down racial barriers among white and black kids 
who are now beginning to dance with each other. The invention of rock and roll by people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and the popularization of it by people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley, and the Comets. When white kids and black kids heard that new rhythm, that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it, they could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked the ropes over and the signs over, and the next thing you know, they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. Police would come in, shut down the show. So rock and roll had brought white youth and black youth together through music. The same thing that great civil rights activists like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other ones, black and white, were trying to achieve through their marches, through their demonstrations, their sit-ins, their boycotts, in efforts to bring white and black adults together. Chuck Berry and Elvis were achieving this through music. While rock and roll was bringing the country together, it was around this time that Daryl Davis had his first encounter with racism. When I was a kid, I had a racist incident while marching with the uh, Cub Scouts. I had people throwing uh, rocks and bottles at me, you know, white spectators, and I, d I did not understand why I was the target. And then when racism was explained to me, I could not accept it. I'd never heard of racism, and I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew nothing about me or, or had ever seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. And I formed a question at the age of 10, 1968, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking that answer now for the next, you know, 49 years. And I, I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, looking for the answer in these books. And I couldn't find it. So in my adult life, I figured, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization that is reputed to believe that somebody else is inferior, to who does not look like them or believe as they believe based on the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. So I decided I would seek out Klan members and ask them to answer the question, and then I would get my answer. So Daryl set out on his lifetime quest and eventually set up a meeting with the Klan. He was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Now, a state leader is what's known as a Grand Dragon, which we would call a governor, oversees the entire state. Uh, and then the, the top guy, the national guy who oversees all the states, which we would call a president, that person is known as the Imperial Wizard. So the Grand Dragon, his name was Roger Kelly, and he went from Grand Dragon eventually to Imperial Wizard. He was the first one that I met and sat down with and had a conversation. Daryl met with the Klansmen who were dressed in full regalia, not knowing the person they were about to be interviewed by was a black man. Well, he showed up with his bodyguard, which is called a Grand Nighthawk. A Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon, like a Grand, uh, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So this Grand Nighthawk walked into the room first, and he was wearing military camouflage uh, fatigues with the Mayok, the blood drop emblem right here, and uh, the initials KKK right here on his chest, 
uh, embroidered across his beret on his head were Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a, a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He came in and he was followed right behind him by, uh, by Mr. Kelly, the Grand Dragon, in a dark blue suit and tie. When the Nighthawk entered the room and turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. And Mr. Kelly bumped into his back because the guy had stopped short. And they stumbled and regained their balance looking all around the room. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, either the desk clerk, you know, gave them the wrong room number or this was a setup. This is an ambush. So I went like this to, to display my hands, nothing in them. And I stood up and I approached him. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. Come on in. He, both he and the Nighthawk, shook my hand. So far, so good. And they both came in. When we come back, Daryl Davis meets with the Ku Klux Klan. This is Our American Stories. To Jesse's story, his segment with Daryl Davis, the black dude who collects KKK robes. Now, the meeting began, as you might suspect, a Klansman surprise black guy meeting to go. They insulted our friend Daryl here to his face. Well, we, you know, we began you know, talking back and forth. Uh, he let me know that um, I was inferior because I was black. And I was expecting stuff like that because, you know, I read all these books on the Klan already, so I knew the mentality. But I wanted you know, to draw everything out of him to find out, you know, how can he hate me when he doesn't even know me and hasn't even given me a chance to express myself and see if he still has those feelings. I asked him to have a seat. He sat down. He asked me for some identification, and I gave that to him. And then we uh, proceeded with this uh, interview. Now, I had a bag beside me, and in my bag, I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they also claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I'd never seen that in there, so I wanted to be able to pull out my Bible and say, here, please show me chapter and verse, where it says blacks and whites must be separate. Then there was a moment of tension. A little later on in the interview, there was kind of a strange noise in the room, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made the noise, because I didn't make it. And because I could not discern what the noise was, I perceived it to be ominous and threatening. And plus, I was hearing that voice in my head, Daryl, don't, don't fool with Roger, Roger Kelly, he'll kill you, kind of thing. And I was ready to attack. You know, my eyes had locked with his eyes, because I'm looking at him like, what did you just do? I didn't say that, but my eyes were speaking to him. His eyes had locked with mine, and I could read the expression in his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between the two of us, like, what did either one of you all just do? The ice in the bucket had melted, and the cans of soda shifted, and that's what made the noise. And then we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. <laughs> but the teaching moment was this. All because 
some foreign and underscore highlight the word foreign entity of which we were ignorant that being the bucket of ice and cans of soda entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made we became fearful and accusatory of one another so the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear if you don't keep that fear in check that fear will, be, will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us if you don't keep that hatred in check that hatred will breed destruction. What happens next between Daryl Davis and the Klansmen is incredible. We became, you know, the best of friends. Well, it might be hard for us to understand how a black guy becomes friends with another guy who's proud and outspoken of his affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan. It helps to understand more about how Daryl Davis was raised. Uh, my parents were U.S. Foreign Service, so I spent a lot of time, you know, overseas in various countries around the world. Uh, with, you know, as an American embassy brat. And today, as a professional musician, I travel all over this country and around the world. And if you combine my travels as a child with now my travels as an adult, I've been in 53 different countries on six continents. Because I was exposed early on to many, many different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities, traditions, colors, religions, etc. And all of that helped shape who I've become. And I saw people from all over the world getting along with each other. When I was in grade school overseas, you know, I'd be over there for two years and come back home, be here for a few months or a year, and then go back to another country. When I was a kid in, this, in the 1960s in, in uh, elementary school, my classes were filled with other kids from Nigeria, Italy, Japan, Russia, France, Germany. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids, we all went to the same school. And that's how I grew up. If you were to peep your head into my classroom door, you would say, that looks like a United Nations of little kids. That scenario was not here, back here in my own country, in the U.S. When I would return, I would either be in newly integrated or still segregated schools that had not quite gotten there yet. So I was either surrounded by all black people or black and white people. Today, when you walk into a, a uh, school classroom, you see what I saw. But back then, I was living 12 to 15 years ahead of my time. While Daryl might continue to be 12 to 15 years ahead of his time, even he became the target of Black Lives Matter. In his Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl is confronted by a young BLM activist. Your time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? White supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change? No, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Daryl later said that he befriended that young BLM activist and that they came to an understanding. In the same way that Daryl brings understanding to so many others, it all started with that simple question that came to him at the age of 10. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? One of my very favorite quotes of all time is um, by Mark Twain. It's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things 
cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. We'd like to close our look into the life of Daryl Davis on a note that has absolutely nothing to do with race. While he's passionate about bringing people together, it's not the only aspect of what makes Daryl Davis an interesting person. He shared with us a fond childhood memory of the time he crossed paths with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bruce Springsteen, all on the same day. Well, Chuck Berry was coming to uh, Coalfield House at University of Maryland, the sports arena there. It was going to be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, of course, I got down there super early, hoping I would you know, be able to sneak in and maybe meet him during sound check or rehearsal. Because I knew that the promoter had to supply a uh, backing band for him. So the concert uh, would not begin until like about 8 p.m. that evening. And I was a kid. I got a ride down there. And um, around noontime, you know, like eight hours before showtime, and the hangar doors were open. People were, like, bringing in equipment and speakers and lights and things like that. I, I just walked on in. Nobody stopped me. Um, so I said, you know, there was no security there at that particular time. And so I just hung out back there, stayed out of everybody's way. Uh, the band came, and I moved over near the stage where the band was, figuring that when Chuck comes for this sound check, you know, I'll get to see my idol and meet him or whatever. And the band was very nervous. Uh, they'd never worked with Chuck Berry before. They were down from New Jersey to, uh, to play for him. And their sound check was at 2 o'clock. So they assumed that he would be there around 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock rolled around and no Chuck Berry. <laughs> and uh, they even got more nervous. And so they went on stage. They did their sound check. They ran through some Chuck Berry songs. And they sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hours ticked by and still no Chuck Berry. And so um, they went on at the, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, did a short set. And then uh, Jerry Lee Lewis you know, came and I got to meet him. And uh, he came on and did his thing, still no Chuck Berry. And about, about 15 minutes or so before uh, Jerry Lee finished, in walked Chuck Berry through the backstage door. He came in just by himself, no guitar, nothing. And he walked right by me and I froze. I thought, oh, you know, because, you know, it was like total shock. He went right by me, and there was somebody standing down the hallway, and he stopped and spoke with that person. I don't know what he said, but in retrospect, I do. That person pointed further down the hallway to a door, and Chuck, you know, went down and went inside that door. And a few minutes later, he came back out, went right back by me again, back outside the backstage door, and then he returned with his guitar. And so, in retrospect, what happened was he went down to the promoter's office to get paid up front, and then he went and got his guitar. And he doesn't bring his guitar in until he, until he has money. So, um, brought his guitar in, and then, you know, I was standing over there near where the band was. He came over, and um, the band leader walked up to him. He's like taking his guitar out of the case and said, Hi, you know, my name is Bruce Springsteen. We're your, you know, we're your backup band. We thought you were going to be here this afternoon. Just said, no, you know, just totally oblivious. And um, he said, uh, we ran through some of your songs. I, I think everything should be okay. Do you know which ones you know, you're going to play tonight? And Chuck said something to the effect of, I think I'll play some Chuck Berry. <laughs> and he went on stage. The band went on right after him. And he just like, you know, went right into it. No key, no count off, nothing. 
and the band was right there with them. And that just kind of like just blew my mind. And that is the story of the one and only Daryl Davis. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Our American Stories, and we love sports stories here on this show. And today we have the story of Julie Crone, the most famous female jockey in horse racing history. Today, Faith brings us the story born on this day in history in 1963. First time I ever saw uh, Julie Crone makes history. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And it was way back in the 80s, and I was in Maryland Racetrack, and I won three races in one day. And it was the first girl to ever win three races in one day. When will it stop? Julie Crone, perfect today. She's three for three. I mean, I always thought, you know, wow, I don't care who you are, you can't genderize success like that. That's just like, well, that's really cool. If I was to explain, the ultimate race to a person, it would be kind of like a w- one where a horse is very easy to ride. You come out of the starting gate and you, and you have a perfect position and the horse and you put your hands down on its neck and it's relaxed and it's just racing and you know it's like at a half speed and you know it's not even exerting its energy. And it's almost like you could sit there and like eat an apple and be like, hoo hoo hoo, like you're waiting because the, the technicality of having horse left for the end of a race is a big part of you know being a successful jockey and then you can kind of like lower down and and then you know throw your apple away that you've been eating that was so boring (laughs) and get to work and like push on his neck and when you push on their necks the energy matches like they stride out and they pull the ground with the same energy that you push on their neck you can't tell where their mane starts and yours your your body ends you know and you all feel like you're part of one and they do it all because, you know, you just have a relationship with them and you saved them and the race was like, you know, and they want to win. Uh, it's, it's off the scale. It's so fun. Julie Crone is the most successful female jockey in history. Born July 24th, 1963 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, she was spunky and fearless. Her obsession with riding started when she was very young. And by the age of two, she was already on horseback. Her mother, Judy, was a former high school equestrian champion, so it was in her blood to ride. Um, probably when I got about 13 or 14, I started to actually like, like dream about it, and childhood perfectly for it. I was set up for it my whole life. Horses, and then I came into the racing scene at a fair track, and then Stevie Cawthon had his marvelous year in Enon. Um, it's a very attractive sport. I mean, even if you sit back and like watch a Kentucky Derby or... Um, anything that has to do with racing, they always do a very good job, and it's, it's very exciting. Julie spent her childhood in show horse riding competitions in western Michigan and won her first horse race at just five years old. Crone won the Berean County Youth Fair Horse Show in the under-18 division, besting competitors three times her age. Once she was full-grown, Julie came in at just four feet ten and a half inches, 
and barely weighing 100 pounds. That was smaller than the average jockey, which was about 5'3". She was small and, as you heard, had a very high-pitched voice, something she was often teased about in high school. Feeling like an outcast and wanting to pursue her dream, Julie dropped out of high school to race. Her own mother, Judy, even forged her birth certificate so that she could compete or work around horses. Julie had a way with thoroughbred horses. Some horses have, like, the most exotic personalities. Um, they really, uh, they look beyond things all the time, and they always have, like, a really look of, like, eagles to them. And most of the time, it's horses that have a lot of talent, you know, or there's some horses, they come into the paddock, and they're, like, ringed wet. And you're like, obviously, the horse cannot be enjoying this. But they run, and they win. And on January 30th in 1981, before she was 18 years old, she made her debut as a jockey. Here Julie was, entering the sport of kings as a 17-year-old young lady. Thoroughbred racing had a long-standing men-only culture. The first professional female jockeys, including Barbara Jo Rubin, faced bias, suffered numerous indignities, and even endured the threat of physical violence. Uh, they don't belong out here. It's a man's world, not a woman's world out here. Maybe they're winning, but I won't bet on them. I think they lost their heart. I'm really disgusted. So it's tradition because I think racing has always been a man's sport and it's just breaking this tradition. Here she speaks to what it was like being one of few females in her sport. It's funny because in the beginning, um, lots of times I'd be in the jockey's room and I would be like the only girl in, in the whole room and I'd be like sitting there for like the whole day. and. Then I realized after a while, when I became more busy, if I rode like all my races, I didn't really care what was going on in the jockey's room. And my, you know, I only worried about my racing and my horses. And then about halfway through my career, uh, 25% of the jockeys in the United States were girls. So I thought that was a really fun time for me. And then it's it's fluctuated in between. Like often there's like a lot of girl jockeys in the room, and then other times there's not so many. But uh, definitely in the beginning, there were. Um, not so much prejudice as the uniqueness of it, you know, like someone riding and, um, and I think there was some opportunities, but then again, there were some people that would just say, no, I'm not riding you just because you're a girl. I'm not going to ride females on my horses. But other people during the time frame that I rode in the 25 years, um, they changed their ways and they, you know, they, oftentimes there were two trainers that would be like, you know, I'm never going to ride a girl on a horse. One of them was John Veach. And then one day he asked my agent to come by so he could put me on a horse. And it was a grade one winner. And it was a horse that won a grade one race. And so it was pretty fun. And I never rubbed it in the guy's face. Like, you said you would never ride a girl. (laughs) Julie often felt isolated. But her talents far exceeded expectations. She took the jockey world by storm. And by 1986, she had won her 1,000th race and brought in two and a quarter million dollars. She was the first woman to win any of the Triple Crown races. Winning a Triple Crown included winning either the Kentucky Derby, Preakness Stakes, and Belmont Stakes. Only 13 horses have won all three races. She was given a long shot horse to ride. That didn't matter. She won the prestigious Belmont Stakes on June 5th in 1993, riding the horse Colonial Affair. Julie Crone now angles to the outside. 
from between horses. That's Wild Gale moving up. But now it's still Cherokee Run under a drive with Chris Antley in front. And now here comes Colonial Affair on the outside. At the rail, that's Wild Gale followed by Silver of Silver. And now Colonial Affair with Julie Crone takes command and draws clear. It's Colonial Affair drawing clear in the Belmont with only a furlong to go. Colonial Affair leads it. Kiss and Chris with a late charge on the outside. Wild Gale at the rail and in the middle of the racetrack. Virginia Rapids, but in deep set, it's going to be Colonial Affair winning it by two lengths. Well, Colonial Affair, the upset winner, but Julie Crone once again has become the first woman ever to win a triple crown race at age 29. I was very, very confident that I had a lot of horse, and I started to think to myself, boy, just about 10 or 11, 12 years ago today, I watched Stevie, Crom Stevie Cawthon win the third leg of the triple crown, and I looked at my mom, and I said, Mom, I want to be a jockey. And you thought I, about that right here? Yes, sir, and then I turned to home and I said, and now I'm going to win the Belmont. She was one of the best jockeys of her time, regardless of gender. Julie was only the seventh woman to jockey in one of the Triple Crown races. At this point, like once you cross a line, you know, where success is involved and people in racing notice things that you do, I think there's no questions. Although Julie did have a fiery side that could not be quenched and often got her in trouble. She didn't just fight back with words, she often fought back with fists. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story. She drops out of high school. Mom forges a birth certificate on this day in history. The great Julie Crone was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. When we return... Julie Crone's story here on Our American Stories. is our American stories, and we continue with the story of Julie Crone. And by the way, I was at that Belmont Stakes in 1993, and we all had our own favorites, but I don't know a person in the audience who didn't throw a few bucks down on that long shot of Julie's. And when it came in, well, a lot of ripped tickets, but a lot of joy to see the first female cross that finish line in a stakes race like the Kentucky Derby. But let's continue the story. We left off learning about her fiery personality that had the tendency to get her in trouble. This certain person, a jockey, we rode the race, I won the race by about 10 lengths. I wasn't even near any of the other horses in the race. He pulls up and he's cussing at me in Spanish. I think he was cussing. And he was saying really <laughs> like, crude things and he rode over on his horse to me and I was like <sighs> puffing really hard after I was done riding and go to put my goggles up and he just smashes me across the face with his whip. Definitely illegal. And it's very, um, it doesn't happen that often. So anyway, we go back, and I'm starting to think to myself, 
that guy just like hit me. And I'm like, I start like shaking and I don't, you know, I can't control myself and I feel something on my neck and I reach like this. You know how the cowboys in the movie, they touch their lip. And I did that. And I just took a punch at him and that was a good one. But all I remember then is we have an older fellow that's a clerk of scales and he was grabbing me and he was like, Julie, Julie, but I couldn't snap out of it. But that doesn't happen very often and I was severely reprimanded. After so much success in history making, one could feel untouchable. But horse racing is by no means a safe sport. Julie knew that very well. On August 30th, just a few weeks after winning the Belmont Stakes in 1993, she endured one of the worst accidents in racing history. A horse from the inside cut her off. Her horse stumbled and Crone fell from her mount and broke her ankle. Not just broke. Smashed. Little lot. Bonnie is right there. Really gray zone. Stumbling. Going down there. A bad spill. I was in the air. I was looking back at the horses and the whole field coming at me. And I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. And it, like, kind of snapped my neck. And her back leg came down and hit my arm. My arm was, like, plastered onto the turf course. By then, I think I had already had a concussion, compressed my vertebrae in my neck, and had a compound fracture fragmentation on my ankle, and it cracked my hip. It tore my cartilage in my knee. She would need to have multiple surgeries on her ankle, leaving her with two plates and 14 screws. Not only that, when she fell, she was then kicked by a passing horse just above her heart. This trampling could be equated to being hit in the chest with a sledgehammer, over 3,000 pounds of force. This causes heart contusion. This is the actual bruising of the heart muscles. The impact could have caused Julie's heart to literally explode within her chest. But it was her two-pound vest that saved her life. I'd worn it for about a week, and they were just going to become mandatory. And I said, I might as well just put it on. I'm one of the senior jockeys in the room. I had to set a good example for everyone. Her vest reduced the blow by about 30%. Had she not worn the vest, this accident would have been fatal. But even after this race, Julie went on to race for another 10 years. This was not her first accident, and it was not going to be her last. She had fallen and broken bones a few times before. It's kind of one of those things where uh, I thought I could fly and I didn't have wings. The horse propped and I went over its head and I landed on my head (laughs) and my shoulder was dislocated along with my wrist and elbow. And then I was trampled by a horse that was following us. And then there I lay on the track waiting for the ambulance. Um, I'm no doctor, but when I was laying on the track and my arm was backwards, and point in the wrong other direction. <laughs> I knew that something was wrong. I didn't have to wait for someone to tell me. <laughs> Biggest problem was that the arm didn't heal. There was too much trauma, and the bone was damaged too badly. Um, but they couldn't get it to touch or meet. And if it doesn't touch or meet, the bone ends don't get the message to each other to heal. So I was faced with that problem, and they took bone from my pelvis, and they put it in the middle. And then everything was good, and the operation, the second one, was a success, and that was March 8th. Ten years later, she broke multiple ribs in a racing accident. But because of her success in the face of severe injuries, Crone was named by USA Today as one of the top ten toughest athletes. And in 1993, she was awarded Female Athlete of the Year. 
After recovery, Crone made her comeback in 1994, and on May 26 that year, she rode her first post-accident winner. But in January 1995, just days after the pins in her still-healing ankle were removed, she fell again during a race at Florida's Gulfstream Park, this time breaking both hands. This crash, though physically less devastating than her last accident, seemed to be the final straw. Julie Crone, the winningest woman jockey in the world, hung up her tack in April 1999 after establishing her place in sports history. Two traumatic injuries in 1993 and 1995 had sapped from Crone the love of speed she had nurtured since she was a child. In February of 1999, Crone became the first female jockey to win 3,500 races before retiring that April and moving on to a career in broadcasting. In 2000, she was the first female jockey to be inducted into the Thoroughbred Her Racing Hall of Fame. In her personal life, in 2001, she married her husband, Jay Hovde, and she gave birth to her greatest prize of all, her daughter, in 2005. But as said before, racing was in her blood. She needed to come out of retirement and raced in Santa Anita Park in November 2002. She was off to a good start in the 2003 season, but unfortunately, she fractured two bones in her lower back and spent the next four months recovering. But she came back again and became the first woman jockey to win a Breeders' Cup race when she rode to victory in the 2003 Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies at Santa Anita. So I retire, and I'm actually, I have a whole bunch of crashes. Like I had a, a couple crashes, and one of the crashes was so bad. Uh, and I had, I had, where well, I became afraid of riding, and then it went away after a while. Like all of a sudden I just woke up one day and it started to go away. And I was like, I was, I was, okay. So I, I moved to California and now I'm in California. I've never ridden there. Nobody's ever seen me. No girl rider does really well there. I'm, I was in California doing TVG and I'm watching the horses come out of the paddock every day. I'm like, I can beat these guys. And I don't know, something happened. And I, and I woke up. One morning, I was like, Jay, I said, I want to ride races again. You know, we had to have the talk. When you commit to being a jockey, you are saying that you would trade your life, possibly, two jockeys a year die, many are paralyzed, or a body part. The chance to have that feeling of that that connection with the horse and that, you know, racing down the stretch and and especially those horses that when you're just pushing on their necks and just reaching for them and their feet fall and they and they reach as, as you reach and you can feel them like when another horse comes up to them and they just dig in and they run on their own and stuff like that. That feeling, you know, is just something that you just never, it's like worth everything in the world to you at that time. So then I decided to ride at Santa Anita and I remember walking around in the morning and I would see every single trainer and the reason being is because I didn't really know any of those people. So people knew me from the Simon Casting and my numbers and I was in the Hall of Fame already. I was in the Thoroughbred Racing Hall of Fame and I literally had to beg for my first mount. And sometimes I'd be walking around and I'd get this attitude with someone and I'd be like, what the heck am I doing? These people should be like asking me to ride these horses, you know, but I had to make it happen and I was not gonna, I was not gonna let this not work. My first, like my thing at Santa Anita, you know, I was not gonna not let it work. She retired officially in 2004 with over 3,700 wins and over 81 million in lifetime earnings. In October, 2013, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. 
where she joins women such as Eleanor Roosevelt, Rosa Parks, Ella Fitzgerald, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Billie Jean King. Crone was also inducted into the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. Athletes tend to be known for their accomplishments, of which Julie had many. Her career was incredible, with over 20,000 mounts, over 3,500 wins, and over $81 million in purse earnings. That's the stuff of record books. But it wasn't the money and fame that she cared about. She says, I would rather have some little girl say, Oh, Julie Crone fell down, but she came back. She wasn't afraid. The feeling it was when I would go around during the years and people would say, do you know how much you've inspired me? Or do you know how much that one time you did that one thing? When I watched that, that just like, I was so rooting for you and stuff. So I know there's a lot of really good energy out there that did carry over. She inspired girls all over the country and around the world and through the rest of history. In the sport of kings, she came out as queen. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith. Imagine that. At five years old, she wins her first race. She drops out of school. Her mom forges her birth certificate so she can race with adults. But that story of falling off and getting back up, my little girl rides. She rides competitively. And when she falls and gets back up, well, be still my heart. I worry for her, but I'm proud of her. Julie Crone's story, here on Our American Stories, born on this day in history in 1963. As always, our This Day in History segment each day, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 